From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. Supreme Court is asking for the Biden administration's views on a state-against-state clash over billions of dollars in income taxes paid by people who are working from home during the COVID-19 pandemic. New Hampshire is seeking to sue Massachusetts directly at the high court to challenge that state's practice of taxing non-residents who used to work in Massachusetts but now do their jobs from home. Joining me is Michael Gratz, a professor at Columbia Law School. It's the due process clause and the commerce clause. What's the legal issue here? Well, there are really two legal issues. I mean, one is it really has to do with whether the court will take the case. That is that Article 3 of the Constitution creates an automatic hearing in the Supreme Court to resolve a controversy between two or more states. And if this is, in fact, that, then the court would have to take the case, although I don't believe that it falls within Article 3 of the Constitution. So I think the court has discretion as to whether it will hear this case. If it does hear the case, the issue is really a commerce clause uh, issue and a burden on interstate travel or interstate commerce, and usually they come up as commerce clause cases, although you can find other places in the Constitution to argue this case from, and nobody's yet really briefed it. So, you know, it may be a privilege and immunities uh, case under the 14th Amendment, but I think it's it's really a commerce clause case. Oh. That's likely the way the court will view it. Let's talk first about the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. So just explain what it means that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction in cases between states. Well, the classic example, uh, going back a long way, would be if one state says that along the border, this piece of land or, or this much of a river is within that state's boundaries, and another state says, oh, no, it's our land or river, then that would be a classic case where the Supreme Court would have to resolve the dispute between the states. But here, what we're really talking about is a problem of taxation, which is claimed by individuals that one state is overtaxing them, even though the states themselves, New Hampshire in the case, is claiming that it's going to lose a lot of revenue as a result of this because it, it gives a credit for the Massachusetts taxes. Or in the case of the tri-state area, we would be talking about New Jersey and Connecticut complaining that they're giving credits for New York taxes and New York is overreaching. But whether that's really within the original jurisdiction under Article 3, I think there's some doubt about that. And so under Article 3, If it were a dispute between the states, and obviously New Hampshire's claiming that it's a dispute between the states, the court would have to hear the case. But the court gets to decide (laughs) its interpretation of Article 3 
And if the court doesn't want to take the case, I think it has a basis for saying that this is not an Article Three case, but instead it's a dispute between taxpayers and two states and who should be collecting their taxes. And that's a case that the taxpayers need to bring, and, it, and it's a case that the court may or may not want to hear. Or the court may decide that because of the revenue that's at stake, New Hampshire has a right to be heard on the case and maybe a party, although I think that may be a stretch, but it's not an original jurisdiction case under, under Article 3. So the first question is, will this case get to the court? Will the court take this case? And that, I think, is a matter for, for some doubt. The court refused the case where Texas was suing Pennsylvania over the elections. How Correct. difficult is it to get the court to get involved in states' disputes right away in an original jurisdiction setting? Well, the court doesn't like to be told that it must take a case. <laughs> and so it often asks whether this is really a case of original jurisdiction, and it wants to limit those kinds of cases. The lawsuit that was filed by the Texas Attorney General about voting in Pennsylvania really presents, I think, the clearest example of the kind of case that the Supreme Court certainly doesn't want to take and absolutely doesn't want to say they have to take under Article 3. So, I mean, that's a good example of a, of a case where the Supreme Court really didn't want to hear it. And just because it was a suit by Texas against Pennsylvania doesn't mean that it's a genuine conflict between the states. Texas was just claiming that Pennsylvania got its voting system wrong. And here, New Hampshire is just claiming that Massachusetts has gotten its tax system wrong and is being unconstitutional in its exercise of its taxing power. So I think this is a case that the court can duck if it wants to. It could also say it's not original jurisdiction case, but we're going to hear it. We're going to grant a certiorari and take the case in this case because New Hampshire the court would say, is, is a proper party to such a suit, and it makes sense to go ahead and hear it sooner rather than waiting for a taxpayer to bring the case to the court, which is the normal way in which these state tax cases get to the court. But this is not a court, I think, that's going to be anxious to get to a decision earlier rather than later or create a precedent where a state can be a party in a lawsuit that really involves a dispute between an individual and the two states that are imposing taxes on him or her. So let's go back to, you said, a Commerce Clause argument. What is New Hampshire's basic argument? Why is it suing Massachusetts? Well, it's basically suing on the ground that Massachusetts is imposing tax on New Hampshire residents who are not working in Massachusetts. They're doing their, their work in New Hampshire. Now, they may be doing it for an employer who's in Massachusetts, in which case New Hampshire is likely to lose that case based on prior precedent. But, but that's the claim. The claim is that New Hampshire's uh, residents are being discriminated against because Massachusetts is overreaching its taxing claim. Well, that's what sort of hit me is because it seems from reading this, these are employees who were working in Massachusetts and then because of COVID, you know, they started working from their homes in New Hampshire. So if they're working for a Massachusetts company, you think that Massachusetts has a better case? I think Massachusetts has a pretty strong case. I mean, those, are, those of us who live in the tri-state area know that New York certainly has for a long time taxed 
residents of New Jersey or Connecticut on the income they earn from New York employers. And uh, New York certainly will come into this case on the side of Massachusetts if, if, if the court takes the case. Now, Massachusetts made this argument, basically, this is an emergency measure. Let's just do this until we see what shakes out with COVID. Is that a good argument? Well, (laughs) it depends on whose side you're on. Massachusetts is, is obviously concerned that at a time when the economy is struggling, Uh, People are able now to work for Massachusetts employers outside of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. A lot of people live across the border in New Hampshire to avoid income taxes on on their other income and other taxes. New Hampshire is notoriously a light uh, taxation state, and Massachusetts back in the old days used to be called Taxachusetts. They have a reputation of being higher, uh, and they are a higher tax state. So Massachusetts is concerned that all these people are now going to claim that they're not working in Massachusetts, they're not coming to Massachusetts, and therefore Massachusetts can't tax them. And, you know, the usual rule is that the states have is that you're treated as being taxable as a statutory resident of the state if you're there more than 183 days, more than half the year. And here people who may have been routinely there in Massachusetts more than half the year are finding themselves spending little or no time in Massachusetts because they've left and are not coming back until the COVID emergency is, is behind us, which is some ways in the future. And, you know, Massachusetts is obviously concerned that they may lose a lot of revenue the two or three years that that's going to take to get people back to work. And, of course, the other problem is that, that given the fact that people like working at home, at least the ones who don't have young children who are not in school, you know, may mean that more and more companies find it profitable to have people work from home rather than leasing or owning office space in Massachusetts. So this pandemic is a long-term threat to uh, long-standing work relationships. Can a court take into account, I mean, let's say, for example, New Jersey estimates it will credit as much as $1.2 billion to its residents for income taxes paid to New York in the 12 months starting in March 2020. Can the court take into account in any way the billions of dollars that some of these states will be losing, or is that peripheral? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers, and so I don't know whether New Jersey is telling you that that's the total that they'll credit. I wonder what they've been crediting before the pandemic. Uh, there are a lot of New Jersey residents who are working in New York, as we all know well, and New Jersey has been crediting New York taxes on on salaries that people earn in New York for a very long time. So I don't know whether this is an additional 1.2 billion or whether it's what they've been whether it includes what they've been doing all along. But but I'm sure the numbers are large. Um, but I think that you know at least in the tri-state area and the Massachusetts New Hampshire border, uh, you know the area surrounding the District of Columbia. It's quite common for people to work in one jurisdiction and live in another jurisdiction. And so that's not a new problem. And there is some Supreme Court jurisprudence on that. The basic rule is that you can't treat the out-of-stater worse than you treat the in-stater. The doctrine is that the state can't be internally inconsistent between in-state and out-of-state residents. But I would say that New York would say, but we're taxing our in-state residents on their salary, so we're not discriminating against out-of-staters. 
So ignoring the jurisdiction question and just looking at the substantive issue, which state has the better argument? I'd rather answer the question, which state is more likely to win um, if the court takes the case? And I think Massachusetts is more likely to win just based on the precedence of the Supreme Court in allowing states a lot of flexibility about taxing income that the state regards as having been earned in their state because the employers in that state. So I think it's a long shot for the residents of New Hampshire to win this case. But it's even it's difficult to think that a resident of New Hampshire is going to have the wherewithal to take a case like this to the federal courts and bring it up through the district courts and the appellate courts can get to the Supreme Court, even if they thought the Supreme Court would take it. It's a very expensive litigation proposition. So this may be the only way it's going to get to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court doesn't decide this, you know, then you know, everybody's going to be in a, in a bit of a mess. Congress is not going to do it. Congress can obviously step in and do this under the Commerce Clause. They get power, but they're not going to enter into this. And all you have to do is think about the political fight that there would be between the uh, states where people are residing and the states where they're working. Why did the Supreme Court, do you think, ask the Solicitor General for her opinion? Well, I think what they'd like to hear from the Solicitor General is that this is not an Article Three case of original jurisdiction, which the court must hear. Um, and that would then bolster a decision not to hear the case. And the Solicitor General's office historically is, is thought to be thoughtful and take into account institutional kinds of concerns. And so I think they're looking for an opinion from the Solicitor General, a brief from the Solicitor General saying this is not a case of original jurisdiction under Article 3. You get to choose whether you hear it or not. And it's conceivable that the Solicitor General would also argue that the case needs to be brought by the taxpayer and not by the state. Thanks, Michael. That's Michael Gratz of Columbia Law School. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Letitia James is the first woman and the first black person elected to be the Attorney General of New York State. As Attorney General, James has filed or joined lawsuits against the Trump administration on issues such as immigrants' rights and housing discrimination. She's also investigating the former president and his real estate business, in addition to leading a group of states in an antitrust suit against Facebook. Joining me is Eric Larson, Bloomberg legal reporter, who recently spoke to James about her tenure as AG. Letitia James and the Attorney General of California, Javier Becerra, are the two AGs who've been in the lead on lawsuits against the Trump administration. Is that because they represent the biggest blue states, or is it because they're aggressive? Well, I think it's a combination of both, really. I mean, the, 
the, as uh, Attorney General Tiff James says it, the California and New York are kind of like the bookends of what she describes as the, uh, the resistance that the blue state AGs had against uh, the Trump administration. I mean, they, these are two states with huge populations and obviously a, a lot of lawyers in New York, for example, she has a team of 700 lawyers and over a thousand additional staff. Um, so they are working on, uh, they have the resources to be able to put together these huge uh, lawsuits that a lot of other states join or they do on their own or they do in cooperation. Uh, so it really is a, a matter of those resources. Her lawsuits against Trump as president, where do they stand? Well, those lawsuits have mostly uh, been resolved. I mean, she says that uh, she filed, I think, about 65 or so lawsuits against the Trump administration. California, I remember they filed over 100. And and, uh, Tish James says that uh, she succeeded in about 85% of those cases. So really, most of those cases that we've all been covering the past several years um, are, for the most part, uh, sort of done. And uh, the, the few that may still remain, it's, it's likely that the Biden administration is going to take a tip, different tack on those. But the, the big ones we already saw with like the, the U.S. Census and the question about citizenship, that sort of thing, um, those, those are already resolved. Much attention has been given to her investigation against Trump, the Trump Organization. First of all, describe what that investigation is concerned with. So uh, the New York Attorney General is investigating uh, the Trump organizations based in New York. Um, she opened the investigation after Trump's uh, former lawyer, fixer, Michael Cohen, gave some uh, testimony in Congress uh, outlining what he described as uh, fraudulent conduct involving the valuation of assets that essentially gave uh, financial benefits through taxes or bank loans to uh, to the company. So. Uh, she opened the investigation in 2019 um, in response to those remarks, something she couldn't, you know, really ignore. Uh, and that that investigation was going along very quietly. Uh, it wasn't really a public investigation, the civil investigation, and the, it sort of blew up um, in, into the public again because she had to file a lawsuit to enforce some subpoenas in that case, uh, which she won. But at any rate, the investigation is still ongoing. It's, it's still at a fairly early stage. Is there any hint that she might let up on it because he's no longer president? Oh, uh, absolutely not. When I spoke with her, she said she fully intends to uh, follow this investigation wherever it goes. Um, uh, you know, there, of course, she acknowledges that uh, that President Biden and, and other some other Democrats have said that we want to move ahead and sort of have this unity and, and uh, let some some things go. That's not how she uh, sees it in in any way, um, and I think that uh, if there is a case when their investigation is done, I don't think she's going to have any problem bringing it. Let's talk about the the latest suit that drew a lot of attention: the NRA suit. What's that about? So, when it, uh, Tish James was running for AG, she had was very critical of the NRA. At one point, she even called it a terrorist organization. Uh, so it wasn't too surprising that she has. Uh, uh, really looked into um, the organization. Uh, the NRA, of course, claims that uh, all this attention is uh, politically motivated, uh, but her lawsuit really does stem from uh, some internal disputes that blew up at the NRA, came out into the public about allegations of uh, financial uh, shenanigans. Uh, so it was their own internal uh, fighting that sort of resulted in this lawsuit rather than 
uh, something political on Tish James's part. That's the way she describes it. So um, yes, they uh, clearly are are very much um, opposed to. They have very different views about guns. Uh, but the way that Tish James describes it, this is a purely following the law case. Um, it's a New York-based charity organization that is suspected of uh, violating uh, charity laws by enriching a top executives. So she just says she's following the law and that it was the organization's own internal fighting that brought it to her attention. Has she gotten any blowback from Second Amendment activists about taking away their guns or anything like that when she filed this? Well, that's certainly what the NRA says, but she described this lawsuit as being filed on behalf of NRA members, people who donated money to protect the Second Amendment, only to allegedly see millions of those dollars end up going to uh, luxury items and expenses for our top NRA executives, like vacations and yachts and things like this, trips all over the place for families and, and whatnot. So Fish James has very uh, different views about guns and these NRA members, but she says she's filed this lawsuit uh, to protect them and to enforce New York laws protecting charities and donations. Eric, are the Google and Facebook cases antitrust lawsuits? Yeah, you know, she's leading the, the Facebook um, lawsuit that's been filed, uh, where she's one of many other states uh, who has joined uh, to sue Google. So they're two separate, uh, two separate cases. Um, in the Facebook case that she's been leading, um, it accuses the social media company of uh, running a, 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 you know, a monopolistic behavior by snapping up what it viewed as potential rivals like Instagram and WhatsApp back when they were a lot smaller, you know, throwing huge amounts of money at them to get them on board, but basically just to stop them from becoming competitors. And uh, the complaint uh, alleges uh, that uh, that was in violation of federal antitrust law. And one of the potential things that they're seeking in the case is breaking up Facebook, which would be pretty remarkable. So that's um, a big effort she's got underway for this year. When you say you're leading the case, New York is leading the case, does that basically mean that New York does all the work on it and the other states just join in? <laughs> well, I think that it's it's sort of different for every, um, every multi-state case. I, I'm not really sure exactly how they divide up uh, the resources, but my understanding is that uh, when when one of the states is leading it, that they are putting in most of uh, you know most of the the uh, resources, financial and uh, people power, that sort of thing. So um, that that's my understanding of how they break it up. What is she looking for? If Facebook came to her and said, "We'll do this," what would she want them to do in order to drop the suit? She would want to see the monopolistic, the alleged monopolistic behavior corrected. Um, as far as what um, options might be on the table for that to happen, I think it's too early to say, but that is why we, we point to one of the, the uh, potential solutions that they outlined, which is to force Facebook to uh, divest uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, as far as what other possible measures they could come up with uh, down the road, uh, it, it's, it's pretty unclear at this point. Did she hint at any lawsuit she might be filing? No, that's definitely not uh, her style. <laughs> she, does, <laughs> she, she doesn't ever, ever do that. <laughs> being attorney general is looked at as a stepping stone to being governor. Does she have those political ambitions? You know, that is something she uh, does not uh, talk about. 
uh, when I first asked her about that, she just kind of laughed. So, you know, when I, when I pressed her on the question, she said it, it, it's too early for, for her to make a decision like that. She acknowledged that the AG role in New York has been a setting stone for others to become governor. But she, does, she said that she doesn't know for sure if that's her path. Um, she said for right now she's going to be focusing on all of these uh, lawsuits and investigations and that for now that's enough for her. Politicians don't usually want to talk about running for another office, but New York's current governor, Andrew Cuomo, was the New York attorney general before he ran for governor. And New York's former governor, Elliot Spitzer, was the New York attorney general before that. So there was a clear path from the attorney general's office to the governor's office. Thanks for being on the show, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.